Welcome to the podcast of First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We are a welcoming and progressive Unitarian Universalist congregation, deeply committed to love and justice. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. Once tempted to panic over where we've wound up and where we've yet to arrive, instead we are choosing to calm down, to unify our hearts and circle our spirits around the call of love. We are giving isolation a break and resting for a while in the warmth of community and common purpose. We are putting down our hidden weapons. We are picking up the courage to tell the truth to each other and look each other in the eye and love with an infectious, unexempting love. We are getting serious about joy and laughter and singing and kindness and unity because within them lies more power to change the world for good than division could ever hold. We mean to mean something to this day which has come to mean life for us. Welcome to church. Welcome to First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. If you have come expecting perfection, I encourage you to change your mind. (laughs) But if you have come to find a place with a people who want to build a community where no one is too young, too old, too queer, too hetero, too black, too brown, too white, too wealthy, too poor, too disabled to lead our common journey, too ineloquent to have a voice, too timid to make a difference that shakes the status quo, then you have found just the place. Love is alive here and growing in our hearts and in our hands, and love is excited to make room for every single one of us here and beyond. Come, let us celebrate. Let us choose truth and joy. Let us comfort and keep each other for a while. And may the power of what we realize in this hour come to heal us, and move us into the wider world, help put our pettiness to sleep, and awaken in us the fullness of compassion instead. I welcome you 
into an hour of worship, into an hour of good keeping with one another. Let us begin by taking a couple of breaths on purpose. Our practice is three breaths on your own time, but together in community to remember that we're here to ground ourselves more deeply into this place. There is no land for us here to own because owning land is a myth. But we are the stewards right now. We are the ones who can take care of this space and each other. And so let us so do with our hands and our hearts, our minds and our smiles together. Let us have church. And I invite you to begin this service with me by joining in the words we use to light our chalice together. It begins with the all-important word, love. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. I welcome you to an opportunity to sing again. And before, uh, before you get excited on your own, <laughs> thank you. I mean, consider the amount of times in the next seven days someone is going to ask you to sing with a couple hundred of your friends. Right? Right? That doesn't just happen, right? We make that happen. We make that happen together. We build that together. And it is not an every moment occurrence. This is a rare opportunity. Let your voice be heard in the voice we collect together. I, even, I have even greater news. The hymn is 1021, Lean on Me, Rise, and Let's Sing Together.
Good morning. My name is Ashley, and I'm one of your ministers here. And I've spent the last few days trying to write a prayer for this time. And it didn't work. Because I was trying to write a prayer I thought you would like, instead of actually praying. I grew up in a church that didn't do confession because we were a predominantly queer church. And oh my goodness, that was too scary of a word. Sin was too scary of a word because it had been weaponized. It had been turned into a tool of harm against us. But the problem with when you don't talk about sin is that you also don't talk about grace. I went to seminary and I did an independent study on sin with the one and only James Cone. For those of you who don't know, he is considered one of the fathers of black liberation theology. And he um, has an unusually high voice for such a powerful human. He would say, you have to get angry. And then it would continue, and you would try not to laugh, because he was powerfully earnest about it. But I spent a semester studying sin with him, trying to queer sin, trying to find my way into this term that had been hurled against me and my family. And in the end, I came to love it. I came to love the practice of confession and of naming sin. Sin is not something bad. This is about naming the ways that we, quote, miss the mark, 
It's about naming the distance between what we dream and what we do. It's about becoming who we are called to be in the world, individually and collectively, and trusting that we will be met with love by divine holiness every step of the way. So I want to invite you into the uncomfortable practice of confession this morning. (laughs) Knowing that I know in my bones what it feels like to be told that I am a sinner, that I am not inviting you into a shame practice. I am inviting you into the possibility of who you can become with love. So pause, because somebody didn't get to go home this week. Pause, because somebody was killed by white supremacy this week. He wasn't actually killed this week, but we saw it this week. The prophet of our times, the Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III said, white supremacy using black bodies to harm a black person is still white supremacy. White supremacy using black bodies to harm a black person is still white supremacy. Let us pause, let us pray. Holy One of justice and liberation calling each of us by name. We confess this morning the ways we as a community, we as a nation, we as individuals have fallen short of your dreams for us, have fallen out of beloved community, have participated in cultures of white supremacy without even realizing it. We gift you our confession to honor the ways your love beckons us forward anyway. We ask you to make space in our beings, in our communities, in our nation for what we might become. We give you our hearts. We lean into your love. We breathe for the ones who are no longer breathing. My friends, the good news is that we are building a new way. In fact, naming the ways we fall short is about how we build the new way. We cannot build that new way without naming the ways we need to grow, 
We need to stretch. We need to become more worthy of ourselves and what we imagine and dream. As I stood up here, I could feel the warmth of the chalice, which is a little bit scary. <laughs> but it's also comforting. It's always there during this time together. Its warmth and love, its illumination are always there as we make our way towards building a new way. May it be so. May we make it so. Amen. Okay, I'm not going to sneak a preach anymore, I promise. Now is the time for our offering. It is the time when we practice the spiritual work of giving and receiving. If this is a time when you need to do the spiritual practice of asking for what you need, we encourage you to do so. We encourage you to talk to us who are up here today. We encourage you to write into the chat um, privately to me online, and we will connect you to resources. And if this is a time when you need to stretch those generosity muscles to practice repair and healing for our collective body, please do so also. Follow the links, drop some money into the baskets that will be coming up and down in just a moment, and know that our offering this morning is going to Mental Health Connect, um, connecting our community with the mental health resources and education that we all need. Let us give generously and receive generously.
Thank you, Franco. It's good to see you. It's good to be back. It's good to be welcome. It's great to be loved. I love you all. I woke up at 5.30 this morning like it was the first day of school. I said, I get to wear real clothes today. I hope they fit. <laughs> what shoes will I wear? I'm going back to First Universalist. My home, my community, my faith home. It is good to be. And it's good to be with my, my colleague, Ashley Harness, who I've known for many years and now is a part of this community as well. I'm so grateful to be doing worship with you today as well, and Franco and Glenn Thomas and Amy. Oh, wow, couldn't be any better. And John back there on the, on the board, making it all happen. But I gotta tell you guys something. I don't like math. I never was good at it. And I'm also from the generation that was introduced to the new math. Anybody remember that? The new math. Evidently, sometime around 1965, 1966, 67, a two was no longer a two. It was not good enough. It was a new two. And I never, ever, ever caught on. Now, let's fast forward a few decades to what I think now is another kind of new math going on, and it's taking hold of the scrollable headlines on our iPads. It's an obnoxious kind of new math that doesn't allow for us to make any computations on our own. This new math declares that a two is no longer a two. It says that 70 is the new 50. It says that if we're 50, we're really the new 30. And that 85 years old is the new 65 years old. Now this math seems to be targeted to a particular demographic in our society that's already confused about their age because they still identify their generation with the first name baby. You know who you are. We know who we are. Now friends, we all know how we got here. In the 1950s, the teenager was invented to consume. And ever since then, we have worshiped at the, at the well of youth culture, at the fountain of youth culture. And as we age, our language reflects this identity, this idolatry of youth. And it's so cleverly consumed into everything that we do. We are all participating in this conspiracy. You don't need QAnon for this conspiracy. It's not even that hidden. When was the last time, think about it now, when was the last time someone said, guess how old I am? <laughs> you two look like sisters. 
tell me the truth. This is at a dinner party in the, bath, in the kitchen. Have you had work done? You still look good. I would never know that you were 75. We have all fallen prey to these comments, this insidious nature of the anti-aging industrial complex, I like to call it. Even if we know we're being tricked by the culture, aging in American culture has been attached to what I like to say the worst case scenario. It's always tied up with the idea of going downhill fast and crashing into the wall of physical decline. Think about the commercials. Help, I've fallen, I can't get up. Physical decline. Mental unraveling. Oh, sorry, I just had an Alzheimer's moment. Loss of self. I don't know who that is in the mirror. It's not me. The loss of beauty. Honey, a light turtleneck, even in the spring, can cover up that gobble-gobble. It's okay. You can do it. How many of you even do this from time to time in the mirror? Just a little tuck. What would a little tuck would look like? Just a little tuck. And then you Google, how much would that cost? Does my health account cover that? And let's not talk about the creams. I brought mine today to share. Beauty Rehab Triple Boost Serum. This is right from my dresser this morning. This is um, Miracle Anti-Aging Overnight <laughs> Absolute premium, <laughs> whatever. I like this one, this makes me feel really good. This is the Miracle Kelp Eye Cream. And then this one I really like here. This makes me think I'm really doing something. This is a Subdermal Repair Neck Cream. Come on, how many of you have used creams at home? Raise your hands. Oh, come on, tell the truth, tell the truth. Boys and girls, I know you do, all right. Now, now don't get me wrong, we can chuckle. But I believe that being of that certain age does bring us clarity and confidence and some wisdom. And we love that. But we also know that at this certain age, we may be haunted by those roads not taken. All those lives that we can't live now. We could have lived. And there's this sobering sense that life is extremely finite. This is the conversation that so many of us have as we enter into these various stages of wisdom building in our lives. But friends, why is deficit and disappointment the narrative that is woven into our way of thinking about growing older. Why? Where does this come from? I'd like to argue that our obsession with youth culture comes from us being consumed with the immediate, 
with the here and now, with the new and improved. We are comfortable being ahistorical, so consumed with the remnants of the enlightenments ever forward, ever better, so enamored with the trajectory of progress for the sake of itself, longevity for the sake of itself. Has that limited us? Has it limited our imagination about what aging can be? There is a theory out there going around, and it's found in the columns of op-eds in AARP magazines, and this is a theory about successful aging. Successful aging. You've seen these series. You've probably taken a little quiz online or in the doctor's office. There you are in the doctor's office with a cane, low vision, heart palpitations, and you're taking a quiz with somebody on the cover of this magazine who's 105 years old, who's climbing Mount Everest with one rope, <laughs> taking a selfie. It's amazing, it's, it's truly amazing, but friends, maybe we should interrogate the successful aging industry. Maybe we should critique it just a little. Now clearly, the current successful aging movement offers a particular model of how to age well. And this model has, is tied to a specific kind of cultural notions of individualist personhood, especially valued in this country, and especially valued in the Western world, emphasizing independence, productivity, self-maintenance, and the individual self as the project. I am the project. Now this successful aging paradigm with its various incarnations came about for legitimate reasons. It's as a result of healthcare getting better and people living longer and healthier lives, which is cool. But, but to hold this up as the goal can sometimes toss us who are not aging supermodels playing three games of pickleball on Saturday. <laughs> Those of us who are not able to do that, leaving us off onto the side. Some of us, are loathing and mourning and disgruntled about the disharmony we experience between our bodies and our minds. Also, we know there is no equality or equity in aging amongst the most oppressed and marginalized people in this country who lack the resources to live healthier, successful aging lives. The other challenge of the successful aging movement is its emphasis on quantifiable activities. The busy ethic, I like to call it, which overlooks the deeper concern and the deeper need for elders to go deeply within themselves to explore questions that need to be explored. The capitalist and consumerist orientation of successful aging are often used as a trademark 
is a trademark for selling us an idea. They've sold us ideas. They've sold us ideas of lifestyles instead of selling us an idea about a life. This business strategy creates the illusionary need for older populations to be forever young and conceal the true humanistic meaning of age. Think about it. There are stores and malls called Forever 21, <laughs> where people who are 50 and 60 are shopping. <laughs> Success itself is a cultural concept as well, with this emphasis on individual achievement and productivity it may not be universally desired. Furthermore, success, as opposed to failure, it's discriminatory. It's a discriminatory concept by its nature to talk about successful aging. It indicates an attitude of exclusion by distinguishing those successful agers from those schlumps like us or me. <laughs> We have to do better, given that the Western world is aging at a rapid rate. Now, in my 20s, back in Philadelphia, um, my nana, my grandmother, um, I was her buddy. I hung around with her a lot. And one day we were catching a trolley. They have streetcars in Philly, along with subways and L's and everything. We were catching a trolley near her house, and it was very crowded at the stop. And, she was 4'11", spry and fast, and she busted through the line and got a seat. And I patiently waited in line and took my time and found her when we got on the bus, got on the trolley. And as soon as I sat down, my Nana starts to talk trash about all the old people getting on the trolley. <laughs> look at that one over there with the cane. She can barely get up those steps. Oh, look at God, what, what is he taking so long to sit down? Would you sit down? Just talking trash about her age mates. And I'm like, Nana, you're 80. You are 80 years old. You're talking about people that are, that are your age. She says, well, I'm not that kind of 80. If I was that kind of 80, I'd stay home. My Nana's disdain for her unsuccessful age mates was decidedly ungenerous. She could have done better. We have to do better. I, I, I had my daughter Aspen draw some numbers last night, and I said, what if we started right now and, and just said, okay, 58, anybody here 58? Anybody here 58? 58? Okay, we're going to throw that away. We're not going to deal with it anymore. We're going to forget 58. Anybody here 40? Any 40-year-olds in the house? All right. We're not going to even look at that number anymore in this church. 29? We're multi-generational, multi-generational. They 29-year-olds here? Any 20-year-olds? 20-somethings? All right, there you go. Good. You're gone, too. 75 in the house. Anybody? We got a few. All right, there we go. You look good. <laughs> Sorry. It's just, it's the culture, isn't it? I couldn't help it. 90, anybody 90 here? Close to 90. Anybody at home? Oh, close to 90. There we are. There they are. Close to 90. We'll throw them down there. 33s. Any 33s? 
Any 80-year-olds? All right, there's an 80-year-old there. And how about the Magic 65? Anybody here? There we go. Let's get rid of all that stuff for a minute. What if we got rid of all those things? Let's get rid of all the ages for a minute. What do we have left? We have us, people, humans, us, we, church. If we're going to be a multi-generational church, we need to stop the stereotyping about all of these ages at all levels. And that means we need to stop making jokes about the avocado toast eaters. We got to stop making jokes about the Gen Xers being neglected and left at the mall, the arcades, the veterans from Pac-Man. And we also have to pay attention but not de degrade the Generation Alpha that's coming up because they're the little teeny kids that went off, the K through, through six, those little kids, their evolution is going to make their eyes bigger because they look at screens. Did you know that? Science has figured that out, okay? Things are changing. Friends, when we create the idea of aging as being an adventure, we move through life as we are, what we are, and who we are, and what we might become still. Most of us elders in our later years are neither drooling nor dazzling. We're somewhere in between, right? We're not drooling or dazzling, we're somewhere in between. And we're still becoming, still creating our story. When we view aging as becoming, we can dive into some new narratives, relaxing into aging, letting the air into those parts of us that we've held so tightly with girdles and support hose. Letting the air in takes away some of the impetus to be a certain age and a certain behavior that goes with it, but to live our years with all that they bring, writing new narratives that make sense to us. We all have stories and dreams and disappointments and desires at any age. We all have infirmities and aches and pains and scratches and bruises and conditions and diagnoses and malfunctioning parts at any age. Some of us have canes and walkers and are in wheelchairs with hearing aids and support animals at any age. Some of us elders don't remember who the hell our kids are. Maybe we don't want to, but we don't remember who our kids are. Some of us want to party like it's 1999. Others want to be left alone. Some are having amazing sex at 80, and some have given up on it at 60. Friends, learning to be old may be the last emotional and spiritual challenge we can agree to take on in our lives. An emotional and spiritual challenge that leads to the kind of practical wisdom that is expressed in the well-known directive from Reinhold Niebuhr. That emotional and spiritual challenge to have the courage to change what you can change, the strength to endure what you cannot change, and the wisdom to know the difference.
Let's dedicate ourselves to acquiring this attitude. Let's change the narratives about the latter life with more nuance and fewer norms. Now, about two weeks ago, I had a birthday. On the 17th of this month, I turned 65. I cried half the day. I really did. I had no idea that's how I was going to spend my birthday, but I cried half the day. And these were, these were tears for my father, who only made it to 47. And for all my friends, all so many friends, who died of AIDS before they were 40. And for all the black people, who I knew in Chicago, where I lived for 26 years, on the south side where the life expectancy is 60. In the same week, my, my daughter Aspen, who's eight years old, put on a pair of pajamas that she had worn when she was four. And you know, when kids grow, they grow like this, so they can still kind of put things on until they get about eight, nine, they start to go this way a little bit. And she finally couldn't get into these pajamas. And she started to bawl. She started to cry, and I was like, whoa, what's going on here? Her body had changed. She missed her old body. She missed her little self that could wear those pajamas. She missed that little self that could curl up in my lap so easily. She was longing for something that is no longer. And as I consoled her, encouraged her to, to choose acceptance about these changes, I thought, why not flip our language around about aging? Instead of saying, I'm 65 years old, or 80 years old, maybe I should say, I have lived 65 years, or I have lived 80 years, which is a very different way of thinking. If you say, I have lived 50 years, and here's how those years have shaped me into being the person who loves the way I love, that's different. Here is how those years have created my spiritual well that I go to when life tosses me a curveball. Here is how those years have shaped the landscape of my choices and my misadventures. Here is how those years have helped me climb out of the valleys of depression and sadness and still see hope on the horizon. Here is how those years have twisted me into uncomfortable ways and stretched me out again so that I could be on my way and return to myself. Oh, yes, we are beautiful works in progress. We are beautiful works in progress from the day we're born 
until the day we take our last breath. We are living each as we should, as we can, as we are. Choose your path. Keep swinging on the swings if you can. Play in the ball pit if you must. But live your life on your own terms at any age. Blessed be and amen. Friends, I invite you to sing a prayer as we go, no matter what age you are. Would you rise in all the ways that we do rise? And let's sing. The hymn is Lady of the Season's Laughter, number 51, 5 1.
So if Unitarian Universalism push you forward in your lives this week, girded up by the passions of human goodness and the possibilities of human justice, let us have a great week, love one another, and bring kindness wherever you go. Blessed be. Thank you for listening to this podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We are a welcoming community that finds strength in the diversity of identities of all who find inspiration and comfort here. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. If you are able to join us in person for Sunday worship, we'd love to see you in church. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.